Hi, I'm Talia Lavin. I'm a writer based in Brooklyn and a lifetime Moby Dick obsessive. And I'm here to guide you chapter by chapter through Herman Melville's 1851 masterpiece, Moby Dick. Welcome to Moby Dick Energy. Moby Dick Energy. Big Moby Dick Energy. I want that Moby Dick. I want that energy. I want that Moby Dick Energy. Big Moby Dick Energy. I want that energy. That Moby Dick Energy. I want that Moby Dick Energy. Big Moby Dick Energy. Hello? Hi. Uh... So, um, welcome to Moby Dick Energy, um, a podcast where we'll be reading through every chapter of Moby Dick and doing a breakdown and analysis, uh, sometimes with, uh, as often as possible with guests, because frankly, this is a lot to tackle all on my own. And today I have a writer whose work I admire very much and who, uh, whose favorite book is Moby Dick, uh, David Roth has joined me. Hi, David. Hi, how's it going? Um, I'm feeling the Moby Dick energy, which is, oh, I think, when you look time. out a window and just, like, feel existential despair. <laughs> yeah, I guess I've been feeling that for some time, then, if that's the, the formal, the, that's the description of the symptoms uh, that it carries. Yeah, I, um, I was very excited to do this. I'm still excited to do it, I should say. Uh, but I also realized I don't have a copy of the book around um, anymore. So I, I went and found the, the clickhole blog post where they just ran it in its entirety under the headline, the time I spent on a commercial whaling ship totally changed my perspective. <laughs> and, which is it's good to know that it's out there for free. But I managed to somehow find uh, just by visiting clickhole and being reminded of, uh, you know, who owns it and what's happening to the people that work at that site. Uh, I found a whole new way to experience dread in the context of reading Herman Melville, which was really neat. It's cool that you can still do that even in your early 40s. Wow, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, that's been forever. Uh, yeah. but It's um, so great that this is out there, too, that, like, I feel bad about not having a copy of it, although it's, like, we've already got more books than we know what to do with. But having uh, having this as a free resource out there where all, all you can do is just sort of Google Ishmael click hole. It's right there. It's not well, one of the also, first stones. You can it's also the first Google... Result. You can also Google Moby Dick full text, and because it's in the public domain, there's, like, Gutenberg has it, like, tons of universities have it. I mean, Clickhole is, like, an amazing porthole into the book. A, na Mar a, a nautical metaphor? My goodness. Maritime pun already? Yeah. Whoa. Um, so I thought I might just read the first paragraph of the book, and then we can talk about how we came to love Moby Dick. You know, I think a lot of people know Call Me Ishmael, just the line, and uh, don't realize that the first paragraph is sort of a wonderful sign of just how bizarre and, and poetic this book the truly best. is. It's so yeah. much better than I remembered it being. So yeah, hit, hit it. Okay. Call Me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, 
whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially when my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking other people's hats off, then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. This is my substitute for pistol and ball. With a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon his sword. I quietly take to the ship. There is nothing surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, some time or other, cherish very nearly the same feelings towards the ocean with me. Uh, and that's the first paragraph. Yeah, just easing you into it. Some short, simple, uh, understated prose. Yeah. To let people <laughs> just get warmed up and get, get limbered up and ready I to read a book. Yeah, right? I mean, I love the phrase damp, drizzly November in my soul. <laughs> it's all so fucking good, dude. I, like, obviously, we will find a way to moderate our enthusiasm for it, because otherwise this will be an exhausting few minutes. Um, that is such, <laughs> such an unbelievable flex of an opening paragraph. It also has in it the, the thing that you consistently are struck by, or that I was in reading the book, which is that, like, it's very, uh, beyond being, like, verbose in a very sort of unique way, like, it's it's pretty funny. Yeah. like he's There's, like, like he just some silly stuff himself. in there. He has to restrain himself from knocking people's hats off, which, like, it, you know, it's like a, it's, it, the beginning is set in, in New York, or as he calls it, the insular city of the Manhattos. Yeah, like, sometimes you're walking down the street and you're in a crappy mood and you're just like, I... I've never had the urge to knock people's hats off, but, you know. I think it's probably because people wear less impressive hats these days. Yeah, it's true. Um, but, but you know, there there's some times when you just feel like, ugh, fuck everything. And, you know, perhaps I should have taken to the sea. Um, <laughs> but so let's talk about how, when did you first read Moby Dick? And how did you come to love it? You know, it's your favorite book and you're a great writer. So that's a... Thank That's a you. big statement. That's nice. Uh, so I read it the summer before my junior year of college on vacation with my family in Hilton Head, South Carolina, which was a strange place for us to go. It was like in retro. It means it's like one of the most Republican places on earth. It was just like a bunch of weird Jews from New Jersey on safari. We went there for like 15 years. I remember it very fondly, but it was a weird place. You know, like I don't know how we settled on it. The fact that we kept going back, it tells you some stuff you need to know about my family. But I remember reading this on the beach. And even then, I mean, I think I was probably, you know, like most people, about at peak obnoxiousness at that age, summer before junior year of college. So it was 20. Uh, very much in the, you know, couldn't tell me shit sort of vein. And the world wasn't as uh, sort of howlingly scary as it was at that time. So I think I could probably afford to be a little more smug maybe even than I uh, would be later. Mm -hmm. So I think I was probably a little bit pleased with myself for reading Moby Dick on the beach in Hilton Head. I mean, honestly, the beach, that's the best place to read it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying then... it's a beach read, but it's good to read <laughs> by the sea. Yeah. yeah um, but it was also, yeah, it's a little obnoxious. I'm not going to sit here and tell you it wasn't. But I was very happy to, you know, be not just like reading something that, I'd heard so much about, but like the instantly it was so identifiable as not just like a, you know, sort of sui generis literary attempt, but like 
I don't think I necessarily knew what my type of book was yet at that point. Like, as I had been, you know, like, you know, I've read stuff in school and had read stuff outside of school and, but, you know, I was young. And I think that the idea of writing in the voice that Melville writes in that I had not only, of course, I'd never read anything that was written like this, you know, but, is anything written like this? No, I mean, not really. Like, I think that it's funny to to go back over this and to see the way that, um, not that it's like impacted the way that I write because it's like it, it's incredible. It would be incredibly flattering to detect any notes in there. But the that sort of like manic stacking of thoughts that you see in that first paragraph and which continues throughout the book more or less exhaustingly at different points <laughs> is like. That's how I think and talk. It's how I write before I get edited. Like, I think that that, like, and this is not to say that this was the seed of that. I think it was just that I recognized in it uh, something that was connecting at a very, like, unusual wavelength. That was different than the stuff I'd been reading until then, which I think was, like, my favorite writers at that time was probably, like, Jim Thompson or, like, Raymond Chandler. So I was reading, like, sort of hard-boiled stuff that had a story and in Thompson's case, it was very literary in terms of how inventive it was with the language, but which was, you know, obviously very different than this. And I think the idea that, like, that great literature could also be this pleasing and this weird was very startling and very flattering uh, to yeah. my, my own vanities. And then I fucking read it again the next semester at college. I did a semester abroad at, was that? No, it was, a, it was just, um, after that. So I think it was the second semester I went to Swarthmore because I was late in picking my major and just that, so I took took a bunch semester of semester abroad. What's that? Is that some uh, is Swarthmore abroad? I mean, I guess it, it was sort of its it own country. Actually, yeah, I should, it was in the sense that it was uh, populated largely by hobbits, and also in the sense that Philadelphia is effectively um, its own region apart from the rest of the United States. Yes. Yeah. It felt yeah. abroad. Um, yeah. Just as somebody who was used to eating hero sandwiches, to have to eat hoagies for a few months was, it's the most out of sorts I've ever felt. Just real culture shock. Yeah. I was like, why didn't you cut this bread all the way through? Who taught yeah. you this? <laughs> but yeah. So I read it again in a class, which was cool too, because it was uh, a much more sort of measured way of reading it. But also, like, you know, I had some other smarter people there to tell me what they thought of it instead of it just being me, like, pumping my fist and high fiving people because of how much I enjoyed the sentences. Yeah. Well, so my Moby Dick story also is academic, but I was a teenager. So I was like, I think it was maybe I was like 15 or 16. I mean, I was like, you know, and I, uh, it was an English class and we had this, um, like project where basically there was a list of books you could choose from and uh, we'd divide up into groups, you know, whoever chose a particular book would uh, would then like, you know, divide up into groups and, and analyze the book together, chapter by chapter. Um, and so uh, my English teacher, um, bless him, who was like this really formative guy in my life, was like, hey, Talia, I think you should do Moby Dick. I think you would really like the book. And then I was like, well, okay. And then I like just... You know, I think there's something about being 16 and, like, I was a virgin. I'd never smoked weed. I'd never drank alcohol, really, except, like, Sabbath wine. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, the way you can fall very purely in love 
uh, at that age is um, really striking. And so I just uh, like, so I was working with like, you know, two or three other people and like we wound up producing like this crazy 180 page document analyzing Moby Dick. <laughs> Um, I started including dreams I was having about the book. Later that year, I went on a pilgrimage to the New Bedford Whaling Museum by myself. Fuck. Um, this is all exactly right, though. This is how a teenager should be reading this book, is that it should fucking drive you insane in kind of like a pleasant, quirky sort of way. Well, yeah, I mean, and not to compare myself to Melville, like, one-on-one, but, you know... Uh, I'm, I'm glad like, you did it first, because I, I came pretty close. Just well, it was just like, you know, if you're a teenager and you're just having, like, insane feelings all the time mm-hmm. that you can't fully understand or control, it's kind of a great book to follow into, because it's all about just wild excess and insane feelings. And I think part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast is because the thought of kind of reading the book stem to stern, I think is very intimidating to a lot of people. And like, maybe they've only heard that it's like a whaling adventure story and they think it's like treasure Island with a whale. Um, but like, it's something so much more magnificent and weird than that. Um, yeah. I mean, it's basically like, like a metaphysical treatise with whales, like in it. I would say uh, that is accurate. It is also like, you know, famously opaque as, it's clearly metaphorical, and yet, like, it's very unclear what the metaphor is. So there's that ele- extra element of mystery and code cracking, which I think would maybe be more appealing to today's teens than it would have been to people in your generation. Yeah, I mean, I also didn't have Twitter, and, like, I didn't have social media. I mean, not to be like, I'm uh, old. I mean, I'm, you know, 30, but, like, first of all, thank fucking God I didn't have Twitter. Or oh, my God. I mean, I'm old as hell, but I count my lucky stars every day on that shit. I did have live journal and I emoted a lot on it, but like it was relatively disconnected from my like day to day life. Um, so I just, yeah, I mean, I was reading Saul Bellow and Philip Roth and like, uh, you know, these like Jewy, very, you know, um, effusive authors like Bellow has sentences that rival Melville's in like, mm-hmm. but like um, they were very, the books were very sort of like, mm, I don't know, anchored in, like, this sort of great male novelist, like, like me perspective and sort of, uh, you know, the just bizarreness of Moby Dick really appealed to me in a way. Like, it was very trans- transporting. So, um, okay, so we've both been in love with this book for a long time, since our youth. Yeah. Uh, um, and so... I thought I would talk a little bit, just very briefly, about uh, Melville himself. Uh, He's buried in the Bronx. I visited his grave one time, um, because I still think it's a good book for pilgrimages. Um, And uh, (laughs) even if just to the Bronx. But so basically. Better than New Bedford, Mass, man. That'd probably involve the bus. That can't be right. It did involve a bus. I've gone to the Whaling Museum twice, and they also have a, a yearly marathon reading. Uh, of Moby Dick uh, in like every January that I have been wanting to go to for ages, but just like haven't. New Bedford's kind of hard to get to. You have to go to Boston and then take another bus, and I don't have a car and I can't drive. So it's you know whatever. Anyway, do they call uh, what do they they call it Dick Days? What do they call that I marathon think, reading? I, I don't know, but I know that like 
the New Bedford Whaling Museum had a lot of really delightful kind of photos of people reading, like, like um, they get, you know, people to read each chapter. So um, that's pretty cool. Uh, so, um, so I'll just like very briefly talk a little bit about Melville's life. He kind of grew up in this um, well-connected and patrician family, but that was sort of down on its luck. Uh, and so he wound up being shipped out as a cabin boy uh, when he was 20 uh, and on like a merchant ship. And then two years later, uh, after sort of searching for work and teaching for a little bit in a school that closed without paying him, his, um, he, uh, he sailed out on the whaler Akushnet from New Bedford on a voyage to the South Seas. And uh, he went to Polynesia um the Marque the Marquesas Islands and participated in a mutiny um which is kind of funny uh as one does in one's youth yeah you know he joined a mutiny that landed the mutineers in, in a Tahitian jail from which he escaped without difficulty this is all from Encyclopedia Britannica so it's like wonderfully understated <laughs> um so he then he like 5 years later he writes these book books Typee and Omu which are I've tried to read, um, and I say tried to because it's like all of the excess of Melville's prose without any of the sort of metaphysics and madness. So it's it's a little exhausting. But these yeah. were a huge I should say too, as somebody who's read a decent amount of his stuff, like bad Melville is bad. It's I think it's fair to say that we have to have a, a you know an open space for that. It can be unreadable. I think also some late Melville where it's only metaphysics and excess and not any of the the sort of spirit or humor that you see in this one uh, makes those books very difficult to read. The Confidence Man, I've struggled. I've tried three times and I haven't done it. I've I've tried to to read his poetry like a lot. And I think, you know, I think to me it's very telling that he's written so much poetry, like so much poetry, mm -hmm. like a big fat volumes worth at least. And I think some of the best prose writers like had and have like a, love of writing poems. Um, I think you have to have a poet's soul to write really, really good prose. That's my take. Um, yeah. uh, I used to write a lot of poems, so it's a little, uh, self-serving perhaps. Self <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I kind of feel the same way. I feel like poetry is like, it's all clearly there. It's a question of like concentrating it. I think that like a good poet could theoretically write a good book, but they also have to be capable of telling a story or whatever. This book is very station to station. And so he really is airing it out poetically sent like one sentence to another, because it doesn't necessarily, the story doesn't always like move in the most linear fashions to say the least. Yeah. I was going to say that's, <laughs> that's a, that's an understatement. So yeah. And then he, he, his last whaling voyage was uh, in uh, like 1843. He, um, out of Nantucket and then he embarked he disembarked in Hawaii and then wound up getting he signed on a frigate and uh got back to Boston and so uh and then he had this like sort of um I'm gonna say so I'm hopefully gonna have Alex Petri on this podcast and she has a lot of thoughts about the relationship between Nathaniel Hawthorne and Herman Melville uh gay thoughts I think it was I think that they maybe had a romance, at least a spiritual one, at the very least. Yeah, I mean, they famously exchanged letters for many, many years, but... Yeah, and I think when they would... So Melville bought a farm 
near Hawthorne's house. And uh, he kind of wrote these incredibly, uh, he described having an infinite fraternity of feeling with Hawthorne. Um, and I think Hawthorne, uh, as Encyclopedia Britannica put it, um, such depth of feeling and so persistently and openly declared was uncongenial. <laughs> Which, it's basically Melville writing these like super Melvillean, like overblown love letters to Hawthorne and Hawthorne being like, mm, cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, but, you know. More relatable teen elements should be <laughs> required reading for anyone who's ever been 15 in that regard. Yeah, and I think, yeah, and so I'm, um, and and but Hawthorne, like you know, having read some Hawthorne as well, like he has a lot of the the prosaic excess, the spiritual elements, and um, perhaps finding infinite fraternity of feeling on this farm uh, with Hawthorne. It, it, this was sort of imbued in uh, in Moby Dick, uh, and um, very relatably, Melville delivered the book late. Um, but not, you know, super late. Like, it was published in 1851 instead of 1850. Uh, and as Encyclopedia Britannica said, it brought its author neither acclaim nor award. That's good writing. It's also really nice to see that Encyclopedia Britannica prose after you read that extravagant paragraph. That, like, perfectly clipped way of saying it was a super dud. It's really, (laughs) really just hitting the pleasure centers all the more. Yeah, so I'm going to message you um, uh, a quote from a contemporary review of Moby Dick, and if you wouldn't mind reading it uh, this way, it's not just me talking, but yes. Uh, London Literary Gazette, 1851. Uh, This is an odd book, professing to be a novel, wantonly eccentric, outrageously bombastic, and places charmingly and vividly descriptive. The author has read up laboriously to make a show of cetological learning, which means whale stuff. Herman Melville is wise in this sort of wisdom. He uses it as stuffing to fill out his skeleton story. Bad stuffing it makes, serving only to try the patience of his readers and to tempt them to wish both him and his whales at the bottom of an unfathomable sea. Which, like, I think bad book reviews have gotten, like, worse. Like, I want bad reviews like this, you know? Yeah. Okay, so... Definitely one of those ones where it's got that kind of, if it were written today, it would have that like unbearable online Monty Python sort of whiff to it. But this is like, that is an extraordinarily elaborate way of saying that uh, the book made you upset and you hated reading it, which I appreciate. I'm sending you another one. All right. New York Albion, 1851. The rarely imagined character, by which they mean Ahab, has been grievously spoiled, nay, altogether ruined by a vile overdaubing with a coat of book learning and mysticism. There's no method in his madness, and we must needs pronounce the chief feature of the volume a perfect failure, and the work itself inartistic. Woof. That's like Uh, something that court, uh, if you somehow had to stand trial for your book being bad, that's what the judge would, would say to you in his decision. Oh, thanks for giving me a new nightmare. Yeah, Uh, sorry, let's, you know. (laughs) I have a book coming out in the fall and i i am like oh my god like yeah i hope but someone calls it a vile over overdobbing vile overdobbing it does have a it seems like everybody's really hung up on the idea that the, the book learning stuff they find kind of unbearable and there is a lot you know there's something to that as you get deeper into the book there is a lot of like 
these interspersed bits on whales, which I think are maybe because I give Melville too much credit. I think we're like intentionally jarring and take you out of the story. But that goes back to another thing that I love about the book, which I'll talk about later. Well, yeah, I mean, and I just I like whales. Yeah. <laughs> I like whales. Who doesn't like whales? How are you going to read a whaling book without whale information in it? Okay, You'd I'm be missing send, out. <laughs> I'm gonna send you the last one, which right. uh, I think is the most vicious. <laughs> the London Athenaeum of 1851. How many literary magazines existed at that time? Just so many. That's... I mean, <laughs> the books were like the thing to do. Yeah, it's true. You know? It's like like asking how many TV recap blogs. <laughs> they were. Uh, there are no. Yeah, they were. Yeah, exactly. Right. How many? Yeah. Like how many streaming services are there now? Think about it. So this is um yeah. Man, this is really mean. Uh, this is an ill-compounded mixture of romance and matter-of-fact. The idea of a connected and collected story has obviously visited and abandoned its writer again and again in the course of composition. The style of his tale is in places disfigured by mad rather than bad English, and its catastrophe is hastily, weakly, and obscurely managed. So what's telling about these is that all of these critics do seem to be identifying the shit that I like about the book, and they hate it. <laughs> yeah, I love the mad, mad English. There's this line from, um, uh, I think it was W.H. Auden's uh, um, eulogy poem for W.B. Yeats, where he says, like, mad Ireland hurt you into poetry. And it's like, that's what the book is about. It's about madness hurting you into poetry, I think. Um, so yes, I love the mad English of Moby Dick. It's it's a fucking crazy book. And yeah, and the stop and go it. stuff is the same for me. I 100% agree. But the idea that this that the book stops and starts, it goes in one direction and it pulls back and it goes in another direction and it goes too far and it has to walk that back, that that's like, you know, I guess maybe it's the sort of perspective of, you know, a couple of hundred years of having been, or 150 years of having been told that the guy is a genius. But there is... That is, to me, like him showing his work. That the book is out of control, and that's what makes it great. That like there's an element of him being sort of lost and pulled along by something that he intended to work in the same way that Typey and Omu did as like a fucking whaling adventure to make him money, and he lost the plot, and the book wound up so much better for it. Yeah, like I have to say, having soldiered my way through as much of Typey as I could, like. I'm very glad that he, that this was, <laughs> I mean, I think if this had been the commercial success of those first two novels, it would not be something we're discussing today. Let's Certainly put it that not. way. Certainly not. And also those books were, I mean, I guess that that's like what, you know, I guess it was bottom of the farm in the first place. Uh, but the idea of, I don't know, like something about him attempting to replicate a kind of a less ambitious commercial thing and then winding up with this incredibly unruly and just, you know, spilling over in every direction sort of book. Uh, to me, it was always a big part of what I kind of admired about it because it felt like he got more than he bargained for. And that seems fun. Like it, it sort of makes the creative process, or at least when I was 20, especially so, that the idea that you could set out to do one thing and wind up doing something else seemed very cool to me and very exciting. Yeah, I love the idea that, like, maybe this was set out to be a, like, if this he ever set out to make this a straightforward narrative, like, he failed so hard. Oh, like, yeah. So early. 
Um, like it, he's talking about, you know, like the mysterious nature of fate by like, you know, the end of this very short chapter. They're all very short chapters, but so anyway, I'll just finish up talking about Melville's life. So he had two sons and they both died. Um, one of a suspicious gunshot injury. Um, it was like determined to be an accident, but he'd had an argument with his dad the night before. And anyway, so then his son Stanwick's. Uh, died of illness in 1886. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, Melville spent sort of the last 19 years of his life working as a customs inspector on the New York docks. And uh, again, with Encyclopedia Britannica, his death evoked but a single obituary notice. <laughs> um, so Moby Dick sort of became the literary phenomenon it did when his publishers put out this 1891 package um, of uh, kind of republishing his works. And then in 1921, uh, the nation um, did a kind of celebration of his 100th birthday. And uh, the reviewer really focused on Moby Dick and he said it was uh, born in hellfire and baptized in an unspeakable name. And it reads like a great opium dream uh, and that sort of kicked off this 1920s revival of Melville and celebration. And, and that's where we get this literary love of Moby Dick. And, and um, then D.H. Lawrence has a great quote. Uh, Moby Dick commands a stillness in the soul an awe. It is one of the strangest and most wonderful books in the world. Um, so I thought we could talk a little bit about the first chapter because I made you read it. Um, Need. Yeah, well, you know, I'm like, there's homework to be on my podcast. Yeah. It was also, I knew that, like, ordinarily, if it was the sort of thing where it was like, just read Moby Dick and we'll talk about it. Like, I probably would have been like, I'm busy that week. But, like, I knew that all the chapters are, like, you know, 1,500 words or something like that. Like, this is just basically like reading a, a, a very unfocused blog post written by an extremely good writer. Yeah, exactly. So that's why I think doing it, like, chapter by chapter or maybe two chapters for the ones that are, like, you know, a paragraph long, uh, you know, is a lot more manageable and, and I can con people into doing this with me. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, including people who maybe have never read the book before. Um, so tell me about Loomings. What did you think of it? And what can you can you describe it for our hopeful eventual listeners? So the the paragraph that you already heard of it is um, indicative of sort of where it goes. I mean, that is basically sort of setting up the idea of how Ishmael came to be on the Pequod. But the it, it's more than just sort of like the, the story itself, that like that sort of jocular, uh, super verbose tone of it, it, you know, pervades through the whole sort of... Uh, chapter and it has in the same way that like and i think this is intentional but again i think that everything in the book is is more or less intentional sentence by sentence in the same way that that feels like the voice of a charming but also possibly uh crazy and definitely troubled person uh sort of telling you his story the entire sort of uh chapter is that so it, it's more or less going over the idea of why you would wind up on a boat but in the sort of the span and the intensity of how it talks about uh, 
the power of of oceans and of water and of reflections and all of and then you know at the end you finally do get like sort of a a hint of the the whale itself as you know an object of pursuit but then also as this sort of unknowable great submerged thing it's a it's a microcosm of the broader you know the sort of the setup of the book which is it unfolds over the course of like basically 20 chapters right i mean it's like before they actually hit the water it's a, it's a bit yeah so basically the the chapter kind of goes through it starts with this very like this wonderful meditation on new york um as sort of this place surrounded by water um and you know and populated I, by people faintly uh or not so faintly wanting to get off of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's basically like he says, circumambulate the city of a dreamy Sabbath afternoon, and you'll see, uh, you know, um, lots and lots of people going to the water. Um, you know, and then he talks about, you know, Narcissus was fixated on water. Uh, artists always paint water, um, and. Uh, the Greeks gave it a separate deity and and it owned brother of Job of Jove. Uh, you know, the sea is very holy. And then uh and then he says, you know, um, and then there's this really wonderful paragraph that's about like the nature of being paid. <laughs> yeah. Um like he like he's like, oh PS, I'm gonna like, you know, summarize capitalism uh like as an aside. But yeah, he um, I'm going to read this also line because I just love it. Um, uh, so he talks about why he goes as an ordinary sailor. Uh, he doesn't go as a passenger because, uh, you know, passengers get seasick and, and you, you know, have to pay for that. Don't don't enjoy themselves. And he doesn't go as a cook. He says, as for going as a cook, though I confess there is considerable glory in that, a cook being sort of an officer on shipboard, yet somehow I never fancied broiling fowls. Though once broiled, judiciously buttered, and judgmatically salted and peppered, there is no one who I will who will speak more respectfully, not to say reverentially, of a broiled fowl than I will. <laughs> anyway. Judgmatically. Um, yeah, like, it's like, I like chicken. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like this is. And so the whole chapter is kind of like that. Because the bit that you uh, mentioned about, about how shitty it is to pay someone, but how great it is to get paid, um, these are, that could be one sentence. It could be a, a short sentence, and it is not. It is, in this case, a, a three-sentence paragraph, one of those sentences being just absolutely stuffed with uh, semicolons and m-dashes every time, uh, every one of these brief ideas. The idea that, you know, water has a special power. There's a magic to it. That yeah. sentence is in there, but it's plugged <laughs> in the middle of these sentences where it's like, or consider Narcissus. Yeah, right. No, <laughs> Which and, is and, good, and, but it's a lot. And one of the things I love about this book, and presumably why it's so popular in, in uh, English, um, like why college professors love it too, is that it's so densely elusive. Like there are a million allusions in every chapter to like, you know, Greek myth and, and the Old Testament and art and, you know, literature. And so, you know, you're really like, there's so much to unpack in every chapter. Um, but at any rate, uh, he... He talks about like, okay, well, so captains order me around when I'm a sailor, but tell me who ain't a slave, which like, given that he was writing in 1850, it's like, hmm, um, yeah. <laughs> problematic. Uh, but anyway, he says, being paid, what will compare with it? 
um, how, uh, how cheerfully we consign ourselves to perdition. Uh, but yeah, so um, then he talks about fate taking him to uh, uh, the invisible police officer of the fates, uh, you know, sort of draw, drawing him towards this whaling voyage uh, as like a minor, and he's like, says he's a minor footnote in in fate. And so uh, would you mind reading um, the last two paragraphs of the chapter? It would be my pleasure to read the last two paragraphs of the chapter. Hang on a sec. I just have to. Chief among those motives was the overwhelming idea of the great whale himself. Such a portentous and mysterious monster roused all my curiosity. And then the wild and distant seas where he rolled his island, his island bulk, the undeliverable nameless perils of the whale. These, with all the attending marvels of a thousand Patagonian sights and sounds, helps to sway me to my wish. With other men, perhaps, such things would not have been inducements. But as for me, I'm tormented with an everlasting itch for things remote. I love to sail forbidden seas and land on barbarous coasts. Not ignoring what is good, I'm quick to perceive a horror and could still be social with it, would they let me, since it is but well to be on friendly terms with all the inmates of the place one lodges in. By reasons of these things, then, the whaling voyage was welcome. The great floodgates of the wonder world swung open. And in the wild conceits that swayed me to my purpose, two and two there floated into my inmost soul, endless processions of the whale and, midmost of them all, one grand hooded phantom, like a snow hill in the air. Ah! <laughs> um. this is, so this is something that happens a lot in the early chapters of the book, and it's one of my most um, sort of treasured memories of it. But it is also, you know, a, a reason maybe not to use this as too much of uh, a sort of a roadmap in writing your own ambitious novel. Those sentences are way better than they need to be. They're too good. <laughs> there, And this happens as we go on through it. There's another one uh, where he describes wandering around Nantucket. I think it's a spouter in chapter, but where he talks about it's not even an important thing. And he uses as a metaphor uh, the character of dies was resurrected by Jesus, I think, Lazarus? in the Old Testament, right? I don't know. There's something else. The New Testament. Yeah. I don't know. Neither one of us is really that familiar with it. Let me... <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, uh, yeah, no. Is Lazarus. Let me... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He talks... It's in the next chapter of the carpet bag. He, he's, he talks about Lazarus. But, you know, let's not... Uh, let's not spoil this book. Right. Anyway... So that bit there is, again, another thing where, like, it is outrageously good writing that does not uh, necessarily serve a purpose. And so this is what, what's good about this chapter to me as, again, as a sort of like a beyond like sentence by sentence, it's, it's thrilling to read, obviously, right? But there's something about it, like, if I were setting out to write a long book, what I had planned to be a long book, and I didn't know how I was going to end it, and I didn't really know what I was going to say with it, I would be inclined to just sort of turn up the tap dancing too, sentence by sentence. So in some ways, this is kind of padding the job, that this is like him sort of giving you a little overture and also maybe trying to buy himself a little bit of time before he gets to whatever the actual story is, which even by the time you're deep into the book, 
you know, it's clear they're trying to catch and kill a particular whale because the captain wants them to. But there's also a lot of other stuff in here that seems rather delightfully under understood. Yeah, and that's why I'm so excited to tackle this on a chapter by chapter basis because we can really dig deep into like the beautiful wild insanity of this book and how unnecessarily it's like so extra everything about it is is yeah. fantastically extra and that's what i love but that line um i have to say i got chills when you read oh, i love I, I love to sail forbidden seas and land on barbarous coasts yeah uh, oh. so it was i got the name wrong it was dives not dies can i read this paragraph from the the second chapter real quick it's a short one yeah 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 now that Lazarus would lie stranded there on the curbstone before the door of dives, this is more wonderful than that an iceberg should be moored to one of the Malukas. Yet dives himself, he too lives like a Tsar, in an ice palace made of frozen sighs. And being a president of a temperance society, he only drinks the tepid tears of orphans. What are you doing, dude? Yeah, he's literally just trying to find an inn. That's, that's chapter two. Seller <laughs> alert is... Ishmael tries to find a place to sleep. And, so, um, yeah, and then we have Lazarus drinking the tepid tears of orphans. Or, no, dives. Yeah. Again, it's not, I don't know that story so good. I remember it worked out well for Lazarus. In yeah. The short, in the short term. The, but, yeah, like, so Direction, there's know? a great deal of that in here, and he does not ease into it. No, you're thrown in, much like someone being thrown into the sea or something. I don't know. Oh, um, perfect. So I just want to conclude this magnificent uh, opener, opening episode by asking, um, what would you bring on a whaling voyage? <laughs> uh, it's funny, like the idea of the, um, I mean, relative to a book or relative to like, if I were in Moby Dick, um, something like some sort of weird scrimshaw that I was obsessed with and looked at daily and had crazy thoughts about in real life, like a handle of scotch or something like it's just there's, <laughs> there's something about the um, how like sort of metaphorical all of this is that it's really hard to have like a realistic thought about it at all. What would oh, you yeah, no, I guess I would I, I'm going to have to change my answer every week, but it's like, yeah. Same, if I were on the Pequod, I would bring, like, you know, some sort of, like, dark onyx gem that I, like, <laughs> fixated on and whatever. Also, I would be male, um, yeah. uh, you know, uh, but um, there's one thing. <laughs> so I I do love whaling museums, and there's a whaling museum on Long Island I went to a little while ago, like, last year. And um, they have this amazing <laughs> little exhibit was, like, it was this little box you could open and it was like, smell what the foxhole, you know, the forecastle on a whaling ship smelled like. And you opened it and it was just this blast of like BO and brine. And like, it just smelled like, it smelled like someone had smoked a cigarette out of their armpit. Um, <laughs> it was this amazingly horrible smell. And so I think about that and like, how would I deal? So I might, I might have, I might bring like, you know, perfume or yeah. something. Um, which ambergris is a major uh, it, yeah. uh, ingredient in high You could make it yourself while at sea. It's true. Yeah, thinking about how gross everything was 
really is it's worth taking a moment or two as you read this shit there's been in there in the the roast fowl chapter that you were talking about where he talks about all the exotic birds that people eat in different parts of the world and all of them are things that like if you know what they look like like an ibis like don't eat a fucking ibis yeah like, and eat like a heron or like a eat, pelican eat a, hip, eat a hippo which he calls a river horse oh yeah um yeah like I don't know. I mean, I'd probably eat a hippo. Like, I, I left, I stopped keeping kosher at, like, age 20, so <laughs> I still am, like, meat that I didn't grow up with. How cool. Um, You know, anyway. Uh, yeah. I think hippo would be filed under, like, that's a gray meat. It is neither white nor red. Yeah, I, I ate whale once, which oh. I feel will make everyone very angry, but I was in Iceland, and they had it for, like, whale kebabs. <laughs> for sale oh my God. at this little like stand and it tastes like um sea beef i mean that's what it tastes like it tastes like what if a cow lived underwater yeah um uh, you know and so please don't cancel me too early uh it's not an endangered whale the particular one that i ate and like iceland has a long native whaling tradition because there's fuck all else to eat on that yeah. island um get that sea beef or else you're just going to be eating whatever uh grubs yeah, so um, I would say now that we've discussed loomings a bit, um, I would say uh, to my listeners, to our listeners, may the invisible police officer of the fates not um, shoot you in the head and lie about it. Uh, <laughs> That's just like uh, a totally normal way of saying see you next time. Just an understated <laughs> normal way of saying I mean, I think you've got to like read weird Melville <laughs> Yeah. yeah. See you next time. Take care of yourself. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I hope you have a judiciously and judgmatically salted and broiled fowl sometime. Yeah. Treat <laughs> yourself to some tepid tears of orphans. And we'll see you <laughs> next time. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Um, um, so next time will be the carpet bag. And um, David, it's awesome to hear your voice and uh, chat with you about this book we both love and hope to have you back. Or maybe like by the time I think by the time we get to you know the double digits um like past chapter 30 or something we'll we'll probably uh start repeating guests so yeah, anytime you want to weird like, if you didn't <laughs> but anytime you want to dip in for a chapter just let me know yeah for sure this was a pleasure though I'm, I'm glad you're doing this and I really look forward to hearing uh, everything else that follows yeah well um I hope that you have some big Moby Dick energy to think and get better soon. I'm going to carry that forward in my continued recuperation and probably a blog about the Mets firing their manager. Yeah, if you can include like a weird Melvillian, like super extra line uh, in the Mets <laughs> blog, I know that will have succeeded. Yeah, it's, I, I feel it very deeply. Where Car uh, Carlos Beltran is in many ways my Ahab. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, have a good one. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. Bye. Moby Dick Energy. Big Moby Dick Energy. I want that Moby Dick. I want that energy. I want that Moby Dick Energy. Big Moby Dick Energy. I want that MDD. That Moby Dick Energy. I want that Moby Dick Energy. Big Moby Dick Energy.